Hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. On today's show, I speak with film director François Girard on his new film, The Song of Names, as well, Toronto Collective, LAL, or LAL, talks about their upcoming new album. That's today on Endeavors. You're listening to Endeavors Radio with your host from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Dan McPeak. Hi there. Welcome to another show from self-isolation in Victoria. Uh, day five of being here in BC. And uh, so far, so good. No complaints. Uh, I still get to do this show, which is great. Um, hope you're all staying safe and healthy and social distancing and washing your hands and keeping to yourself as much as possible. Today, I actually have two guests uh, on the show. My first uh, is a Canadian filmmaker, screenwriter, director who gained international recognition following his 1993 film, 32 Short Films About Glenn Gould, which was a series of vignettes about the piano prodigy Glenn Gould. That film, uh, which was released in 1993 uh, and starred Colm Fjord, who's also been on the show uh, a couple years ago, received four Genie Awards, uh, including Best Motion Picture, Best Direction, Best Cinematography and Best Editing was also nominated for Best Screenplay and Best Supporting Actress. It also won Special Prize for Fiction at the Prix Italia and the Jury Prize at the Sao Paulo International Film Festival. He followed that up with perhaps his most well-known film, The Red Violin, which at the time was one of the most costly Canadian productions ever made as it was shot in five different countries and multiple languages. That film went on to win the Academy Award for Best Original Score uh, and eight Genie Awards, including Best Motion Picture, Best Direction, Best Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, Best Music, Best Sound, and Best Costume Design. It also won numerous Jutra Awards, which is the Film Awards of Quebec, including Best Film, Best Direction, Best Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Editing, Best Sound, and Best Score. He has released three other films since then, Silk, Boy Choir, and Hoshalaga, Land of Souls. He's also directed various works for the stage, including Stravinsky's Symphony of Psalms, Oedipus Rex, and Novacento at the Edinburgh International Festival, Kafka's The Trial, The Oratorio Lost Ob Objects at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, Siegfried in Toronto, and The Lindbergh Flight and The Seven Deadly Sins. He's also produced a residency show for the Fir Cirque du Soleil Z in Tokyo and Zarkana, which opened at the Radio City Music Hall in New York. He also, in 2013, he also directed a new production at the Metropolitan Opera in New York, and that was a production of Wagner's Parsifal. His new film is The Song of Names, 
starring Tim Roth and Clive Owen about a reclusive Jewish violin prodigy. Uh, the film was being released on digital platforms now, and it was directed by François Girard, and he was kind enough to take a few minutes out of his day yesterday to talk with me about the film. Hello, Dan. Hello. François Girard, hello, bonjour. Thanks for being here today. Yeah, thank you for your time. How are you, uh, how are you uh, adjusting to the new times in this world right now? Well, uh, like I'm, 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 you know, not, no complaints here. Like I, I was supposed to be in development right now, writing at home. So like, this is exactly what's happening. So my, in my own little selfish world, there's little disruption, <laughs> but all around me, the world is collapsing mm -hmm. and then, uh, it's a uh, very, I'm very preoccupied and very concerned and, and I try to keep in touch with the, uh, where this is all going. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of writing, uh, you have a new film out, uh, The Song of Names, and um, this is slightly different for you, is because you you directed it, but but you didn't write it. Um, as as a director, as as a filmmaker, what was that like for you, directing somebody else's words? This is the uh, this is the second time that I, I direct a script that I didn't write, and well, it has. Um... It has its uh, upsides, uh, definitely. Like uh, first, you, you work less. Um, uh, writing, like you know, on the film, like the, the Red Violin, for instance, like it's five years of carrying the film on your shoulders and researching, and and so like to have a script that's ready, like uh, and, uh, and then that you jump in. Like I, I did work with the writers, like quite a bit, but the I didn't have the responsibility of signing that script, so. Uh, there's um, 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 something to enjoy there, and also, uh, like in in the perspective, if you if you direct your own work, you tend to be more defensive about it, right? Like, you, and in here, like I'm almost um, I'm reading it a little bit, like the actors are reading it, and and then we're all interpreting it, uh, uh, but it's not my blood that's on the page, so it gives you a distance that, which at times I think is very healthy, a perspective. You uh, you mentioned that you were somewhat you know you worked with the writer um, Jeffrey Kane a little bit, but this was also based on on the novel by uh, Norman Liebrecht. Did did you involve him at all in in the process? Sure, sure, sure. That Norman is the source of this whole world that we're depicting, and then the, uh, uh, he has uh, uh, you know his book and the story come from his deep knowledge of the um, uh, Jewish culture uh, uh, which he is a part of he's a jewish scholar but he's also a jew like a, a music scholar he's a, a music commentator and critic uh, highly competent uh and on on at both levels and it gave it gave that book for that reason uh so of course like uh, there's multiple times where i went back to norman we would sit down he uh, he made my uh, education uh, like in, in in the highly complex and diversified Jewish culture. Uh, so there was a lot to 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 dig out of his knowledge. Uh, and then we had multiple music discussion. Most of them like for you know to uh, like for the fun of it. But um, he was part of the to the end. He was part of the uh, the process and. And with Jeffrey, like we we actually sat quite a bit. Like uh, I, um, I actually worked with him uh, on the script uh, quite a long time, and and um, and 
yeah, like a, a great companions. You, you you mentioned the red violin, and you've a, a lot of your films has fo have focused on music. You also did uh, thirty two short films about playing Gould, Boy Choir. Um, in many ways, do you consider this perhaps a, a spiritual sequel at all to the red violin? I, I do see a lot of similarities. Um, well, um, I mean, like for some of those similarities made me like at one point made me um, almost declined to do it. Like the like the the the, the music, the violin argument, the centered like the violin being so central in this piece too like made me uh, consider um not doing it but the uh, after after a um you know if you dig deeper and you look at it more closely you realize the importance of what is what it says and what needs to be said and uh, that mission to carry the memory of um that page of history the holocaust second world war and 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 so on like the uh became more more important, way more important than my own personal career consideration. So I, I surrendered and 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 decided to do it. You know, you, you mentioned the Holocaust, and this year's the seventy fifth anniversary of the end of the war. Why do you think that the Holocaust is still such a relevant topic, both in in daily conversations, but also in in depictions in media? Uh, well, relevant, yes. Uh, present in the media, is no. Like the uh, like the level of uh, the level of uh, forgetting is quite amazing. Half half the population under thirty years old don't even, like they don't even know what the word Holocaust means. And so we, um, I, I don't know how old you are, but like we grew up in our education, it was very present, and then has. As other genocides, uh, which have happened later or before, and then, but I think I think also like there's a in our current world of technology where everybody's like stuck to their screens, uh, little screens or bigger screens, like uh, and then I'll include the work that I feed into that, those screens. But um, the you know the the phone and the and the iPads of this world, like I think, are driving us into a um, obsession with the present. And I think, I think the level of memory or the our per perspective has narrowed down to the immediacy of the present time. And I, I think the role in that context, cinema can do a lot, like you know, to uh, in order to escape the uh, um, limits. Of that obsession, and either look back at what have, what human can have been, Matt can have been going through in, in the past decades, centuries, uh, or or look forward in what might us. So um, I think film is a great time traveling machine, and uh, I think it's uh, more needed than ever. Is is that why you like directing period pieces? Um, I, I I do know that a lot of your films have sort of focused on. That you know a long history or or specific points in time. Um, probably, probably yes. Like I guess I could just give you that answer. <laughs> um, I um I don't have the. I mean, like I'm. I'd be curious. Uh, I'm often asked that question, and now like I'm, I'm. I want to go see and how much of the film production deals with the present, and how much of it like deals with the future or the past. Um, to me, traveling in time is the, one of the greatest prerogatives of film, and I'm certainly not alone to, 
to go around. Uh, uh, like, I mean, the, there's so many uh, examples. The um, the notion, I think we are inundated with uh, uh, depictions of our present. I think I feel the need myself, for my like a, as a citizen of this world, to escape that uh, and look back and forward uh, to inform our our current uh, um, the era. Uh, so, I guess I guess uh, the answer the answer is yes. Yes, I love traveling in time. And uh, but I think I think most filmmakers would uh, say have the same answer. Uh, I want to bring up um, Howard Shore's score because it is hauntingly beautiful. I noticed it right right off the bat uh, in the opening scene. There, how how closely do you work with with your composer, especially on a film that is so much about music? Uh, oh, I mean, uh, like. I, I've, you know, Howard is like, a, like in Kenyan film or in the world film, like uh, in the world of, uh, especially from my perspective, you'll understand that I, I knew all about his work and I'm a big fan of Dave Cronenberg's work. So I, I've been following Howard forever and, um, and um, you know, admiring his music. And what surprised me is that like uh, then when we met, because we never met before this project, and he, uh, how much he knew about my work, like which like surprised me quite a bit. And then, he, he, including my opera world, he's a subscriber at the Met, and he's seen my work there and elsewhere. So, I, I, it, it was um, uh, it was a very natural match. Like we we sat together, saw the same problems, worked on the solutions immediately. It's been you know we've been talking for two years to to get to this point. And um, I have to say that, like, uh, um, Howard was, like, one of my greatest film companion ever, and now a dear friend, and uh, it, it was uh, joy. It was uh, joy and um, very productive collaboration. So, like, and then the result, I think, shows, I think what the result shows is his uh, talent and his commitment. Uh, I, I mean, I was... Um, uh, this like, Howard had something to say here. Uh, he does all the time, but the the I think he was particularly invested in this uh, song. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of music in the film, but like that one song that lasts like a minute and a half or two minutes uh, drove probably uh, more than half of his efforts, and it, I think it shows. Get, you know, given that this film kind of jumps back and forth in time. What was your your sort of shooting sequence like? Did you let Tim and Clive meet their young younger counterparts at all? Yeah, well, as as you can imagine, they never met on set because they were well. Sometimes they, I would shoot. Well, there was those funny days where I would shoot the the. I think there was one day where I shot the three generations on the same day, but um, they were never in the same scenes. Uh, so, like. What we did, we did a uh, during prep. We would have sessions uh, with the three Martins and the three Davidals, and uh, and it was very interesting because uh, you know you're trying to you, you're trying to get the three actors to contaminate each other with thoughts and ideas and on you know physicality, spirituality, whatever the characters is about, uh, and then so we would have long talks, a little bit of. Uh, physical work but mostly talking and then it's pretty uh 
pretty, pretty interesting to see a one year, eleven year old like um, who's never acted once in his life, like explain to uh, Clive Owen his vision of Davido, <laughs> and the same same thing happened on the Martin side. Like kids, it's fabulous. I love working with kids because they're unencumbered with of you know the unpolluted minds. Like they have no consideration for career or ego like they're all about the part and they're smart and they're creative like and then like it's like and as we grow older like we become more i don't know more obsessed with uh, our path and where it's going and what it means to this and that and then like at that age they're uh, wonderfully open and and uh creative uh and finally just before we wrap up here you've you've talked a lot about um time travel and sort of, you know, how you like to use cinema for that. So I'm curious, have you ever thought about directing like a big sort of sci-fi time traveling adventure? Uh, I've contemplated the, uh, well, the big sci-fi, like uh, I wasn't offered yet and probably uh, won't, but the, the, um, uh, I've uh, contemplated the, uh, I've written one piece that was in the future and I'm working one staging now that is in the future. Um, I think, uh, especially now, like the uh, contemplation of the future becomes more and more relevant, uh, the, as, as relevant as the past. I think, I think we, um, we are as collectively increasingly blind to past and future so whatever we wherever direction we push i think it's good like um uh we we should be concerned about what's coming and it's you know some might even say if you read the some might even say that like it's happening now future is happening now so uh so let's let's uh let's be open let's look forward let's look backward and see where we stand uh, well, the film is Song of Names, and it's out on all digital platforms right now. François Girard, uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. That was my conversation with director François Girard. He's the director of the new film, The Song of Names, which is out now. My next guests are an electronic music duo based in Toronto who have been making music for over 20 years. Their sixth album, Dark Beings, was released on March 8th via Cruising Records um, and is their first album uh, to be released in the United States. Uh, and LAL um, is heavily influenced by their collective experiences uh, in the communities that they're a part of. So it's queer, trans, two-spirit, non-binary, black, indigenous people of color, uh, and their friends and allies. And a large part of what they do is to create inclusivity for the audience uh, and a safe place to be uh, and support each other. Dark Beings was released in Canada last year, spending four months uh, at number one on the campus electronic music charts and was longlisted for the Polaris Award. The band also toured extensively through, through Canada, playing Sled Island, POP Montreal, and the Illuminato Festival. Uh, it is their follow-up to 2016's Find Safety, released on Ray Spoon's Coax record, and that was a collection of songs inspired by their art space, Unit 2, which is a word-of-mouth warehouse operating for over 10 years in Toronto's West End, hosting varied events from gigs to local activism and everything in between. Uh, their previous album, Find Safety, was also performed at MOCA, 
uh, in a show entitled All You Can Hold, a multi-art spectacle created to the album. Uh, a big hit at Summerworks 2015, All You Can Hold, incorporated the wearable sculpture of Angloff's Cult of Catchery armor and accessories uh, and was written and directed by Ang Loth. But who is Lau? Lau is Rosina Kazi and Nicholas Murray. Uh, they were supposed to do uh, a mini tour of the States. Uh, in fact, on the day that I talked to them, they were supposed to be in Pittsburgh. Um, but obviously, this quarantine, self-isolation, and travel restrictions have put a kibosh on that for now. Uh, but they were still kind enough to jump on the phone and talk about their album, Dark Beings. This is Rosina Kazi and Nicholas Murray of LOL. Nick, Rosina, LAL, how are you? Thanks for being here today amongst amongst the isolation and the quarantine. Yep. <laughs> yes. How yeah, are... Uh, as, as, as musicians and, and as a touring band, I know you were supposed to be in, uh, in Pittsburgh today. Um, yeah. how, how, are you, how are you coping? How are you adjusting? I mean, I think Lyle has been through so many, so many different formations in so many different countries that we performed and like, worked in. I feel like, um, yeah, this kind of global kind of idea of the world kind of suffering through something is something we've always kind of seen the world as kind of connected on a very large scale so it feels like it's a continuation of like the lifestyle that we've kind of always wanted to continue in a sense where we grow with community and i mean i feel like because we've already set up our home to be like like running unit two it's almost like a lot of queer and trans folks in our community or just people have been kind of prepping for this for a long time <laughs> and maybe it came sooner than we expected but we've kind of always worked in these ways to support community you know um so even like with our two be our tour being canceled yeah it, it does really suck but it doesn't impact us right. spiritually you know like i think i mean definitely economically um it will have an impact but We've been around for so long that we tend not to get freaked out by much. Spiritually, in the sense where we feel like we are all connected to a group of individuals that kind of think of the Earth as part of our own existence as opposed to being this other thing that we can exploit. So spiritually, we feel like we are connected to the Earth. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> well, you know... And, it, and as artists and as writers, you know, a lot of great material comes comes out of both connectivity and, but, you know, but also, quote unquote, suffering. Have you yeah, thought about so. the, the creative goodness and the creative aspects that could come out of an experience like this? Well, I mean, most of our records are based off these experiences, you know, like even this album, uh, dark beings is actually based around all of this stuff you know um find safety that we put out in 2016 was all about safer space for you know women identified folks trans and queer folks racialized folks you know our album deportation was all about what was happening after 9-11 so i feel that artists many artists and writers you know philosophers this is the work that we've been doing um, the way that Dark Beings was connected to the work, to the present moment, in a sense, it was like the idea that 
regardless of how we surround ourselves with all of all of uh, capitalism and consumerism and such, there's always the the history of um, the past and the, the the past like sacred knowledge coming back to save us. But also connected with new knowledge, like not just thinking about tradition, like it has to be aligned with new, you know. So I feel like we've always been doing this work. Um, Interestingly enough, people, you know, press particularly weren't as interested. (laughs) But that's okay. We're going to continue to do the work anyway. So thank you for even talking to us. (laughs) Well, you know, what's interesting is that uh, yesterday, actually, or just a couple days ago, I, I read an article that was specifically targeting how the queer community can cope in in times of isolation because it can be particularly tough for them you know whether you're like a queer artist or drag or or, or whatever and i know you two are 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 heavily involved in 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 that community um have have you thought about that aspect at all And, and how do how do you think the queer community can come together in a time like this so we've been thinking about this and so so much of our work is unit two and law we're basically a loose collective of a bunch of like weirdos uh, and a lot of folks who are queer, trans, two-spirit or racialized folks. Um, So we've been doing this work. I feel like queer and trans folks, particularly coming from working class, middle class or like political lenses, um, have been doing this work, you know? I think what's happening now, even with when you see like there's the the group of the caremongering, like that started by like QT BIPOC folks in, in this city. You know, so there is already a history of, particularly when you also talk about disability, um, many of us suffer from, you know, mental health or physical health. So we've been creating these systems. And now the interesting part is now we're getting people outside of our communities who are understanding that there needs to be a shift. You know, so now there's some attempt to be working together um, and supporting that. And so I'm a little bit worried because... You know, a lot of these folks who now understand that there needs to be a shift tend to also be and can sometimes be very hateful to our communities and maybe not in a violent way, but definitely in a judgmental way or um, like the homophobia or the transphobia, um, the, the racism in this country is real. And so I think there's a moment that we can transform and I hope that that transformation happens. But queer and trans folks and racialized folks, we're already on the plan of, like, how do we survive? You know? In reference to your question, though, um, at this point, we, we can't actually do anything because we're in quarantine. And that, so, that's actually not true. Like, I've been doing a lot. Well, so I, I mean, in, in terms of, like, what are we actually doing, um, there has been movements done, but we try to keep them a little under, under, we don't want to be, we don't want to like kind of say that we're doing stuff in order. No, we have been doing stuff, but even before this happened, we had a community dinner all over the, uh, throughout the winter, right? To support folks. A lot of those folks, because, you know, are continuing to do that work. Uh, Obviously not at our space because we're in quarantine right now, but there's definitely a network of us who are still, you know, um, doing that work. We're still, you know, uh, we have a unit two page where people can get online and talk to each other. if They're feeling lonely. And I think there's a, a, a party tonight online. <laughs> and so like actively, whether we can leave our house or not, and many of us can't because of disability stuff, especially we're always doing this stuff on or offline. You know, it hasn't, what's changed for us is the global impact 
of this, I think, is really scary. But I feel like a lot of us have been focusing on this work, you know, for a long time. Right. Well, and, you know, this this idea of, of collective and a community, when I was in Vancouver, I lived in a collective house and, you know, it was pansexuals, polyamorous people. Why do you think the fact that a, a collective specifically seems to attract, you know, queer, BIPOC people um, as, as opposed to, you know, the other, you know, the hetero members of society? Is it because if, if you're sort of feeling, I guess, marginalized, you all come together? Well, I think it has to do with power. Like power doesn't work in many of our favors, right? So when you don't have access to traditional power, whether that be decision-making or like money or like jobs, like you're forced to work together, you know? And I think a lot of us also come from traditions, like cultural traditions that actually are very communal. And it's systems like current, you know, it's systems like patriarchy or capitalism or even some types of like communism and socialism that, that are actually, you know, they are capitalist in nature. Um, it's these systems that, you know, are actually, we don't come from a lot of this stuff. And when queer folks, I believe and hope, I can't go back in the past, but queer identity was once a part of our communities, you know? So when I feel like heteropatriarchy, all these systems and people who identify with us, we've been brainwashed into thinking that these things aren't part of our communities or that we shouldn't be working communally. You know, and so I think like that's part of why you see queer and trans and two-spirit and racialized folks. I mean, like my family coming from Bangladesh, like that's that's what they did. That's what I grew up around is, is community, you know, because I think they felt alone. And I think that stems further back into something deeper um, that's in our blood memories. I hope maybe I'm making that up, but that's what I, <laughs> that's what I tell myself. Yeah. You know, just one more note on, on this, um, you know, when, when this whole epidemic happened, it, it, it pushed other n- news stories out, like, you know, the, the blockades and what a sway win and, you know, um, news about queer people and, and, and indigenous communities. How do you think what we're going through now is going to change those conversations, if at all? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I'm worried that... A lot of these issues that were really in the hearts and consciousness of, let's say, people in Canada is being completely um, pushed aside because of the virus, the scare of the virus, you know, and so that worries me um, because even the idea of and sometimes I go into this paranoid place of like we can't protest, for example, in groups. So that worries me. But I think what what we're seeing is that people are trying to create new ways of protesting or shit disturbing or getting that word out. Um, I mean, I think, I think, I think the relationship to capitalism has kind of changed when you look at like all the environmental beauty that's happened since, since, since the, the, the people are allowed outside and the quarantines and isolation. Like I feel like people are, I, I hope, I mean, the scientists are telling us like all over the place that when like there's so much environmental beauty happening right now in terms of like clean air animals coming back to rivers and stuff like that i feel like also like the amount of time people have to themselves and like i feel like hopefully this will change people's relationship to capitalism i'm not sure it will but like that's a hope anyway and there's like and there's a correlation between 
what's happening with indigenous folks here around the world, environmental impact with this virus, you know? And I think people are beginning to really connect those things. Like this isn't just some virus just came out of nowhere. It's, it's, it, it's eerily connected to the environmental, it's like the timing of it is very eerie and science is beginning to prove it. Though artists and community members have always known it. If you fuck with nature, nature will fuck with you, right. you know? Yeah. So I think, and that's, now we're proving it scientifically. So I think that's the, the shift that needs to happen, you know? And it's happening, it's happening. Uh, so your your latest album, Dark Beings, uh, just came out a couple weeks ago. Um, and I know it was on Cruising Records, which which has specifically has a mission for queer artists to thrive. And your your last record before that was released on uh, Coke Duckers, which is uh, Ray Spoon's um, label. How how important is that for you, um, not only to be on an independent label, but to to be on a label that is so queer focused and, and, and queer driven? So Cokes is like our Canadian label, and then we just uh, put out this record in the U.S. through Cruising, and they're also connected. I feel like, Ray, a lot of us, because we're dismissed or because we just don't feel comfortable, even though queer and trans folks are, are becoming more of the mainstream, many of us, because of how we write or the way that the, the music that we make um, isn't embraced, and we're not willing certain things to kiss certain people's asses <laughs> that Cokes, especially in Canada, if you look at the roster, it's like a bunch of us who are like queer and trans and, and, and allies or friends who just want to put out music and really work and support community and same with cruising. And there's, there's a really nice energy in that. I feel comfortable in that. I know that the work that we make will be held I don't have to worry about being ripped off or being taken advantage of or being treated like shit. There's a shared experience that makes it very, um, um, just really important to, cause this is, this is, this is our spiritual work as well. And I'm not just going to hand that off to like somebody who I don't know or care about, you know, we, we were hanging out with, uh, Ray, um, a couple, maybe four or five years ago in Europe somewhere and um, we kind of just kind of grew with them and we kept in touch and um, we they had this deal through a distributor and were allowed to and they just were like yes let's do this label thing and so we kind of got on board and they then introduced us to the label in Seattle and that's how we got in touch with Cruising. But we are ex- exactly as Rosie did describe, a like-minded community that kind of work together and are very trustworthy. There's no record deals. There's there's no there's no real deliverables at the end of the day. Um, we work together on, on figuring out strategy and publicity and all these things. So it's all it's all a group of us working collectively. And I know that uh, Dark Beings, um, it's your sixth album, but it's your first um, that's that's being released. Uh, in, in the U.S., um, yeah. what was that experience like? And I, I, I know you, you talk a little bit about why you why you decided to sort of uh, c- come back to the scene a little bit, but the the process that went into that decision and, and getting it released down there as well as up here. I think part of that was based on some of the, cause, uh, the advice that we got from our U.S. PR people, Erica, who's been fantastic. Um, because we're not, 
great at strategy. Um, we've had, to, and because we've been around for so long, we've had to relearn or unlearn or re-educate ourselves on sort of how to do this, particularly as folks who don't aren't mainstream minded. Um, and so I think working with working with Cruzin, it just it's an extension of the work that we do here. It just makes sense to to work with folks who are from um, that geographic place in order to connect in and cruise in. Um, they've been amazing with connecting us with like anarchist folks, queer folks, at least across, at least the dates that we did on the West coast, you know, even with like artists, um, it's like, it's, it's difficult to do that when we're in Canada. So to have that support is mind blowing. Yeah. It's a very, the U S is a very hard territory to, to go in blindly unless you have somebody that's rooting for you there it's very difficult at least that's our experience yeah and Clyde Clyde uh, we played at uh, in Seattle and there wasn't a lot of people there but Clyde loved what we did and so when we approached Cruzin they were super down and you know and that was just even that feeling of like somebody actually wanting to put your work out you know was felt amazing uh we talked about this briefly about how a lot of your dates got postponed, and I know you're supposed to go to the uh, the states uh, in the fall as well. Um, do you know what's happening yet in in, in terms of, of of your tour? How do you how do you deal with something like that in a world that's changing every hour? Exactly. I mean, our hope is to do some of the six states. Some of them were in Canada too. Some at some point, but because we have no idea what's going to happen. I think part of our strategy will be to also do like online concerts with communities in different cities. Um, that's, I mean, I, we both don't think about being in the future too much. It's like we're, um, we're very present in our work. So I can't think too far ahead. Um, and I'm, we're just taking it day by day, but worst case scenario, we do more like online stuff, interactive stuff with different communities. And then the hope is maybe at least by the fall, things will be, um, you know, much better for travel and for artists and for anybody doing gig work. And we'll be able to like, you know, take, like do the rest of the tour. Uh, we, we've seen a lot of artists, you know, streaming concerts from the living room, like Rufus Wainwright is doing a thing where he's playing a different song every night, uh, different bands who've got their shows canceled. And there was, uh, I think some magazine that wrote about, uh, band streaming. This is their time to shine. Um, how do you think this event and the, the changing economy is going to affect how bands play and, and, and approach their craft going forward in, in terms of playing for audiences? Um, I mean, I think in terms from a monetizing or like a remuneration point of view, like I'm wondering how people are going to actually make money from streaming. That's my first thought, but, um, uh, I think it's a beautiful way to to show share your work with with audience, but um, um, yeah, I honestly don't know. I feel like I feel like it'll just maybe go back to small, intimate crowds. Um, that's a possibility too. Maybe like twenty people in a room kind of thing, or something really exclusive. Or exclusivity will become a thing again, where it's only a, you're invited to see this person perform for for serious amounts of money or. Um, I don't know. Or maybe not money at all. I feel like, you know, a lot of artists, what you're seeing too is sort of the downfall of those who have really focused on a capitalist framework. 
you know? So I, I hope and pray that like artists who've banked a lot of money, you know, and who haven't shared that money, I hope that they're aware that there's a whole other sector of folks who are, who are, who are struggling or who will struggle and that they do share those resources because that's one thing that I've noticed is that once an artist, at least in this city, makes it, um, makes it quote unquote whatever that means, moves to the one percent, to the one per- or closer to the one percent. There's a tendency for them not to be active in community anymore. So I hope that 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 also transforms the artistic community and and the idea that we will share money and resources, because um, many of us don't have you know um, publishing deals or record labels or let's say you know royalties coming in and at some point you know money might not even be worth something so what are we how are we uh dreaming or how are we getting ready for that reality you know um that's what freaks me right out and i'm not freaked out by it because we've created infrastructure to trade and um it's not all about money it's about trading energy or trading services but I think it might impact folks who are heavily connected to just making money, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, g- given your 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 history as a band and your experience with collectives um, and sort of the the subjects of your songs, I'm curious what your what your writing process is like. How do you how do you put a song together? Yeah, most of the lyrical content really just comes from Rosina and her lifestyle choices and like how she goes about her day and how she's influenced by the music. We really are separate in terms of like how, how that forms. I do the music, she does the lyrics basically. She definitely comments on the music, but in general we are, our, our, our process is very separate in some ways. Um, but sometimes like more and more, I mean, we're always in the room together. You know, and what we're doing right now is writing. Like, all I feel that I can do right now is write. So we're writing, like, every day. And... Writing once on a day. Yeah, and the hope is, like, to be more collaborative. I was hoping to step away from doing the admin because I get stuck doing a lot of that just to be able to make more music because I used to produce before, too. So there seems to be this opening to do that. You know what I mean? So that's something that I think we will be renegotiating or we will be developing in our own way of doing more collaborative work. And even with different musicians, like we've always worked with musicians, but there's a really beautiful spirit that's happening that I think, and it can be all online if, if needed, just to start sharing files and working together in a way that traditionally we haven't worked, you know? Yeah. Uh, and you know, on, on your press release here, it, there was a plan for you to release uh, a new album uh, next year in 2021. Is, is that still on, on the cards? Uh, yeah, I feel like we want to do something exclusive to, uh, exclusive, there's that word again, or something um, in a different territory. Uh, I was recently in Japan, so I'm hoping to maybe get some, some something over there, which would be really nice, just because, um, you know, it's good to spread, spread your music all over. But my instinct is that I feel like, I don't know, we have to rethink, we have been rethinking how we make music and release it. And now it's like another, I really want to do more collaborative. We already do collaborative work, but actually going deeper to do collaborative work, you know? Um, and, and what's happening now is that because the, the global energy is focused on what's happening now, you know, I think 
there's an opportunity for us to reach out to our friends and artists and community members across the world and do some shit online um, if they have access to stuff online, you know, which is also tricky. But there's something else brewing. I don't know what it is, um, but I'm excited about it. And I just got to get my head around it. <laughs> I mean, in in a way, with everything that's happening, could this be art's time to shine, so to speak? I think independent art, um, I think sometimes we forget how much the arts industry is an industry and it's very much yeah. it's very much controlled by particular people and how much money you you know quote unquote have or power you have and so i do think we have been slowly shifting that you know young folks are into everything and actually really love independent work um but i think there will be a shift because now our survival is on the line like your basic survival is on the line so independent artists aren't going to be so I, I don't know. I'm not going to be so... I've never been sympathetic to, like, big moneyed artists, but because now that our own livelihoods are on the line, I think you're going to see a shift in people wanting to support independence and not just the same folks who've made bank for a long time. I mean, I think- and vice versa, artists who make bank are going to want to share their resources um, because that system also just creates this self-perpetuating model and i think it's going to shift all of us you know yeah and i also think i also oh. think, i also think like the um yeah hopefully there will be more of an artistic approach in terms of a sensitivity to everybody's needs and and what is the world we're creating and how are how are how are each person participating in this said world and how can we involve everyone and how can we make it more communal and and I just think that a, certain, a level of sensitivity towards this actual world would be a beautiful thing. And I think that comes with creativity and, yeah. and, and artistic ideas. Because most musicians, like whether you're big or small, most of the a lot of the money that you make is off gigging, right? So if we can't gig for the next two to six months, and who knows, like something needs to transform. And I hope that there'll be a shift in a communal transformation and not just the same old idea of like, I'm just going to make money for my camp or for whatever. Right. You know, cause I think the impact like any kind of gig work right now is you're being fucked with. So if you have family members or friends or you're going to know somebody who's being impacted, you know? Yeah. And I think that's, what's very interesting uh, at this particular moment that, that there could be, and I hope a transformation of how we see, uh, how we live as as humans, you know. Uh, speaking of of collectives, I know there's uh, a really good organization here in Toronto, um, Glad Day Bookshop, that yep. or Glad Day Lit, I think they're calling themselves now. Um, that's organizing uh, the emergency fund for queer artists and service industry people. Um, <laughs> does does something like that just bring about the importance of collective spaces? Totally. Totally. And this city, like, you know, over the last year or two years, independent spaces have been shut down due to gentrification, due to rent increases. Like, there was a really ignored conversation, even though you'd see it pop up once in a while. So this is another reminder of to, of the city of Toronto and, and the province and, and nationally 
like to actually put in money and provide space for people to do the work, you know, because Glad Day is one of the only books, queer bookstores left. I used to work at the women's bookstore and these places are their hearts of communities. They are so important. The Rape Crisis Center is another spot. Their rent is ridiculous right now. And I hope that there's a shift to support these organizations because there was a, there has been a shift to not support them. Like even Glad Day has been struggling. Yeah. Glad Day should not have to struggle. The, the, the Rape Crisis Center should not have to struggle. You know what I mean? So I'm hoping that there will be a big shift in ha- there's so much resources that the city has like just give it to us you know <laughs> on, on organizations like that why do you think people are hesitant to support those groups whether from a from a civic level like individually or from a government level is it ignorance that we're, we're not aware of what it takes to to run spaces like this or or they don't have the publicity that some some bigger places do um, I think it has to do with um, yeah, with this idea of, of, of deliverables or like profit or like how can you prove that your organization is in any way impacting the community based on these metrics that only subscribe to the idea of like a capitalist framework. For example, like if like the rape crisis or like like Glad Day Bookshop, like that they would probably be measured in terms of how many books they sell or how many people come through the door, like as opposed to all the people that came through there and had shows and that were able to kind of like come out of the cold and be in a warm place and like meet with like, remember, like, 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 like-minded individuals in their community and such. Like there's, there's all these untangible kind of like um, things that, are not really calculated within the same the, the structure that we're kind of as humans we're kind of are right now. And I also think like even though you have seen shifts around gender violence, around queer and trans folks, you still have a lot of people in power who do not care for us. You know, who do not think that women's bodies are something to be protected or women's and trans bodies, you know, and so when you look at the hierarchy of what is supported it's like we support, you know, sports shit than we do the Rape Crisis Center, even though half the population are women or trans folks. And so I think it, it relates directly to, you know, power. And it shouldn't. It should. And so that comes back to what Nick is saying. It should really be about taking care of community. Like we have a homelessness issue in this city, you know, yeah. and... That hasn't really changed or it's gotten worse. And it's like, that shouldn't be, like, that's horrible. And just because they're homeless or they don't have, again, these are people that we consider, not we, but like, I think the powers that be consider not to be important. And we're all important, you know? For sure, for and sure. Like, and even like, when you look at the structure of the city government, it's like, who's actually in there? Like, half of us aren't represented in those things. So I think that's what also needs to change. Like who actually represents us and who's able to represent us, our government situ our, the way that we like our government needs to change. <laughs> I'm not expecting them to change immediately. So most of us just work within communal ways and have been for a long time. I know uh, something else you did this year was you celebrated the twentieth anniversary of your of your first album, uh, Corners. Um, what what was that what was that experience like re, 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 revisiting that after all these years? I mean, it was really good. 
it was cool to go back into like all the records we sampled and like and to kind of like put the record back together and perform it i mean we we at this point we really think the last two records that we did are our first and second record at this point because <laughs> we just kind of figured it out then so like the fine safety and dark beings are actually our first and second record at this point in our careers but um yeah we're <laughs> we're, we're still we're still growing though but also like that record we were living at the corner of what gerard in parliament like in that in that hood and it was very interesting to notice that that area hasn't really changed that much you know yeah so and and that also one of the videos was shot in parkdale 20 years ago and parkdale has changed so much so it's very interesting to go back and lyrically listen to that record because it was an observation of what was happening around us basically is what we do. And so some things have shifted in this city, but many things haven't, particularly the issues around, around poverty. We were, you know? we were very hopeful back then too, though. Well, we're still hopeful. <laughs> you know, it's just being quarantined in your house for a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Kind of intense, you know? Yeah. Um, would you say that you have a favorite song off of Dark Beings? Um, oh, my favorite is probably the title track, Dark Beings, only because um, it just speaks to the whole concept of the record, and I really like how it came together. I think for me, it's like, I Am Goddess, we just put a video out by a really amazing queer black visual artist and artist named Tiana Smith. <laughs> that song basically is, it was my, it was, an, it was like a metaphor for what Mother Earth, non-gendered Mother Earth uh, was feeling towards humanity. And it just seems so real right now. <laughs> you know, even though we wrote this stuff two years ago, it seems yeah. very real um and then to also have a visual representation with queer you know cutesy bipop folks um and playing with gender and shot outside a children's peace theater in nature there's something very um there's something really like uh, what's the word it's like not very strange that the fact that that we just did a video and launched it at this particular time you know yeah so yeah well the uh new album is dark beings and it was released on march the 8th uh rosina nicholas thanks so much for your time today thank you so thank much you so much and unit two hopefully will actually have you been to unit two ever <laughs> no i have not but i would love to okay. come and visit it once all this dies yeah. down exactly and even like whatever happens we're gonna look at setting up online stuff so i'll uh, i'll try to get you a message for sure thank you so much no worries thank you so much all right have a good day okay bye-bye bye-bye and that was rosina kazi and nicholas murray of lao their new album dark beings is out now that does it for me today hope you're all staying safe and healthy uh hope you're not going too crazy in isolation but thanks for tuning in, and I will see you next time. Bye for now. Just say I like a trivial thing.
desires like to have a lot of sex. <laughs>